before we really let it sail. Because somehow we believe that by looking back, by pulling back, by stopping and moving backward, we'll gain more force going forward. Once the arrow goes, it has to be allowed to fly freely. So some of you may not know yet that we are about to celebrate 20 years in this building. In fact, some of you who have been around for a while might be really surprised (laughs) to know that it's been 20 years since we moved into this building. A lot of us here have been on this path for a long time, learning and growing together and studying what the Fillmore's taught and putting it into practice. You get a lot of homework around here. You get a lot of opportunities to take this outside the doors and really put it into practice. And I know a lot of you have been here at least as long as I have and I'm in my seventh year. So we're, most of us, not newbies at this way of moving through the world. However, we can forget that we are already a sail, that we are already doing our work. And we can bring ourselves back regularly to looking at how we became who we are, to where are where we think our perceived power comes from, to what we've had to overcome to become who we are. So our work today is to be in this moment. Our work today is to consider that we already have what we need. We have the momentum. We have the intelligence. We have the heart to do what we came here to do. We don't have to keep evaluating. We're already here. So I want to share with you that on Friday, August 4th, in, here in Colorado Springs, that the Jewish synagogue temple Bet Torah was struck by vandals and Swastikas were painted on the building and on the sign, and the words Sig Heil were painted. Um, I want to share with you that on the same day or evening, on the Old North Side, which is not very far from where we live, that on the Old North Side, six different vehicles were painted with racial slurs in homes of people of color. That happened in our city very close to our neighborhood, here where we live, not in New York or California or Wyoming or Texas, but here in our city. And that matters. It's important for us to stop and take note that that took place. Because we know that apathy is synonymous with acceptance. When we're simply apathetic and we take no position, we accept the way things are and we allow them to continue. So we have to make some choices about who we will be in this moment and what is the appropriate way to respond when this happens in our city, anywhere in our world, really. Who will we be? What is this about for us? And it's interesting because our theology teaches us that we are the hands, the heart, the living motion of love, of the divine in action. 
So if we're busy being the hands and the heart and the living motion of love, where is the power in that? Where is the strength in that? Where and in what way will we define our position when this happens? We have a way of looking at love as soft and fluffy. Kind of the same way people who know a little bit about our metaphysical teachings think about us. Oh yeah, those guys. They eat a lot of granola and wear Birkenstocks. Right? I can't tell you the number of people have to- who have said, oh, you're the minister at the hippie church. No, not really. You should come. We probably have a few, but... Hmm. It is important to define when we say the spirit of the holy is love, how we perceive that. If we perceive love as soft and malleable, or if we perceive love as strong and powerful and world-changing. Bob Marley said, love is like the wind, it's invisible. And I, as I was reading that quote, I was thinking it is like the wind. And sometimes it's soft and moves gently and barely, just barely, brushes the skin, brushes the hair enough that you feel loved and caressed. And sometimes it's a powerful gale force. And love is that, isn't it? Love has immense, tremendous power when we become it. When we recognize who we are right now in this moment. When we look at issues that happen in our society, we like to look back and decide whatever happened to make us who we are. And then we pass judgment on that process. So this morning I wanna read a story to you. And I wanna invite you to do this with me. I want to invite you to hold love in a neutral way. To be neutral in your love rather than judgmental. Just observe yourself in the process. Observe where your heart goes and what it takes to bring yourself back to neutrality. This is actually a very easy story. It's not too difficult to listen to, but it will touch your heart. It's called Where Does Racism Begin? And it's by Mary McLaurin. I can remember it like it was yesterday, which is a pretty bold statement because at 59, I consider myself lucky to remember my name at times. Some memories, the more profound ones, leave a permanent pathway for us to amble down when and if we choose to do so. This is one of those memories. I grew up in Chevy Chase, Maryland in a nice suburban home in a lovely neighborhood. Even as I write this, the intoxicating fragrance of the mimosa and apple blossom trees seem to envelop me, beckoning me back to a world much different than the one I live in today. I remember old Joe, an elderly African-American man who would push his wooden cart through the neighborhood streets singing strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, over and over again. Moms would grab their pocketbooks, make their selections, trade pleasantries with Joe, and bustle back to whatever they were doing. 
Another, another man, Sam Mason, also sang to proclaim the news that he was available to sharpen knives, scissors, and to make small repairs to thingamajigs. Milk was delivered to our doorstep in glass bottles left in metal boxes. The milkman would retrieve the empties and leave fresh milk all before the sun came up. These kinds of men always seemed to conjure up something special for us kids. A magic trick, a piece of candy, or a juicy berry. We loved them all. On weekends, we would scarf down our breakfast and race out the door, grab our bikes, and wait for the others to arrive. Off we would go to explore the woods, the creek, or a forbidden haunt with crooked gravestones etched with words too old to make out. We spent hours in our magical world of make-believe. We never returned home until it was dinner time. This was our world. Safe, secure, consistent, and for the most part, happy. And there was Mary. She came twice a week to clean our home, and I loved her. Back then, maids were African-American, always and without exception. I would talk her ear off while she made beds and ironed clothes, follow her up and down the steps when she did the laundry, and I never knew her life was any different than mine. Children like me only knew the limits of our world by how far our peddling would take us. We were not aware of anything going on in the great big world outside of our own. All I knew was she was kind to me, and she never lost her temper or shushed me. One day, my mother told me that Mary was bringing her little girl with her because the person who took care of her daughter was sick. I was so excited because she was my age. I had decided that long, the long middle branch of the oak tree by the side of the house would give me the best vantage point to view Mary and her daughter walking up the hill. Kendi was everything I'd hoped for. We contemplated each other curiously for a brief moment since neither of us had ever been with a child of another race. After the initial inspection, we became best friends within minutes, as kids do. We jumped rope in the driveway, drew hopscotch with chalk, pulled out all the board games from the toy closet, and laughed the entire day away. When it came time for them to leave, Kendi and I begged our moms that we could have a sleepover. It was Friday, so of course it would be okay. We were jumping up and down with great anticipation of what our night would entail, and there was a deafening silence. Awkward glances were exchanged between the moms. Finally, after what seemed like an eternity, my mother softly said, I don't think tonight is a good night, honey. Mary quickly jumped in and agreed, saying that she and Kendi had lots of things to get done tomorrow. My mother started listing all the errands that had to be run since it would be Saturday morning and that it just wasn't going to work out. Our little hearts were broken. I protested, confused. I never go to do those errands with you. I always stay here and play, and Kathy, who was my oldest sister, would be there to watch us. Mary and my mom shared another awkward glance. Mary chimed in, maybe another time, baby. We've got to get going now. You know, Mary has to catch the bus at 4.30, and Kendi has to come along with me. Maybe you two can play another time. Yes, another time, my mother chimed in assuredly. Kendi and I knew something was wrong. Nothing made sense. Sleepovers were always spur-of-the-moment decisions. It was a weekend night. Kendi was already here, so what could be wrong? What was it that could not be said? I cried watching her walk down the hill and out of my life, and I remember Kendi turning around several times. 
maybe wanting to remember me just as I did her. Somehow we both sensed we would never see each other again. I remember throwing a bit of a tantrum to the point my mom had to take me inside and sit me down. She told me that Mary and Kendi were Negroes and explained to me what that meant. They were a different race. They were black and we were white. She said it wasn't acceptable for both races to intermingle, that they had their neighborhoods and we had ours. But you like Mary. She helps you work every week, I said. Yes, honey. I like Mary very much, and she is a big help, but that is her job, and she gets paid for that job and then goes home, just like Daddy comes home when he is done with his work. I didn't understand. I thought of Kendi as a best friend already, as children do. She certainly wouldn't care that I was white, and I didn't care that she was black. Kendi and I were five years old, making that year 1960. In 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Riots broke out in many cities, including Washington, which was only six blocks from our home. I was now 13 years old and remember the National Guard patrolling Massachusetts Avenue, a main road not far from our house. I also remember a curfew my friend Holly and I rebelliously ignored. We had to go see for ourselves to believe what was happening. We snuck down to Massachusetts Avenue and there they were, soldiers, in military uniforms, bearing arms. Even at 13, I couldn't fathom this, and I couldn't help but think of sweet Kendi so much like me. She and I were so happy that day, only to not see each other again just because of our skin color. It didn't make sense to me then, and although I was seeing the brutal reality of racism unfolding right before my eyes, it still made no sense to me at 13. Weren't adults always telling us to respect each other, to play nicely, to get along and not fight? Weren't the priests in the churches the very people who taught us we should love each other as God loves us and help our neighbors? I have never forgotten Kendi and often wondered if that day affected her as it affected me. Because that was the day I was taught about racism. That was the day I learned that Kendi was Negro and that I was better than she was. But that day was also the day that taught me how to live and how to teach my children to live. With all the injustice occurring in the world today, the answers and resolutions will come from the children. It all begins at home. That's where we are taught as children to love or hate, accept or reject, to be kind or cruel. I will never forget the day I was taught to judge other people by the skin and how it crushed me. I was taught I could not love another human solely on the fact that their skin was different than mine. I don't, didn't know it then, but Kendi was to be one of the most significant people in my life because my experience with her taught me one of the most important lessons. I think back to my first sight of Kendi and how I marveled at the differences between us. Children three, see through unfiltered eyes, and until we begin adding those filters, they see everyone as equal. Why wouldn't they? unless someone taught them otherwise. I imagine as you were listening that some of you have similar memories, that some of you have memories of being taught that you are different from someone else. I imagine also that as you listened, some of you might have remembered a time when someone judged you as less than because of who you are. 
Maybe because you were tall and thin, or because you were short and fat, or because you had four eyes instead of two. Maybe because you were a nerdy person who liked to study books rather than ride bicycles, or vice versa. I imagine that most of us in the room have had an experience one time or another of being judged for who we are as opposed to what we do in a way that doesn't allow us to ever fix what we were being judged for. That's what we're talking about. In the judgment that happened here in our city, we're talking about judgment that happened because of who someone is rather than what they do. It's important to consider that. It's important for us now to consider how we will move forward from here. And the tendency is twofold. Part of the tendency is to take our judgment now against the perpetrator. How could they do that? When we do that, we become as injurious as the perpetrators were to the individuals that were affected. Racism, any kind of ism, any kind of phobia, affects all of us. It doesn't just affect the individuals. It affects us in very practical ways. There is national coverage right now of what happened for us on Friday. People in business will make decisions about whether they want to move here and be part of our community based on that small impression. That affects us economically. It affects who will live next door to us. It affects judgments that people have about being here. It affects us on a personal level when our families see those things and decide whether or not they want to come and visit us here. These kinds of actions have a big impact, much bigger than just the individuals, and yet for the individuals, they're incredibly isolating. When this happens to you, you feel alone. I know, happened to me. In the late um, early 90s, I had my house vandalized because of my religious beliefs. I had written an article for the newspaper. And in that article, I had expressed some of my religious beliefs. And uh, people of a different faith didn't like what I had to say. And so my kids got up the next morning, and there were signs all over my house. There was a four-foot-long, three-foot-high banner that said, Jesus is Lord of Lords, staple gun to the front of my house, and black oil poured across my lawn. So I know what it feels like, how alone a person can feel. I also know that what healed me more than anything else, and this was back before the time that we had Facebook and instant communication, and you could open the phone book, and your name was there, and so was your address. I cannot tell you the number of letters I received from people because I wrote an article to the newspaper for the newspaper and spoke about the fact that an editorial spoke about the fact that religious freedom is only freedom if we honor it as so. And I received letters from so many people in that community speaking to the fact that they didn't agree with what happened. They didn't speak negatively about what had been done. They spoke about who they were and who we as a community are. And we have a chance to do that today. We have a chance to be who we are. Not to judge whatever happened to the people who felt like they had to marginalize others, but to simply be who we say we are, the presence of love. We have the opportunity 
to stand as the presence of love, to live as the presence of love, to hold love as who we will be, to affect mass consciousness with the love that we are. This afternoon, there's a rally at three o'clock. We call it a rally. It's gathering. At three o'clock in Bonfort Park, which is just down the street from Temple Beit Torah. It's at 2323 Wasatch. We're going to gather there at three o'clock, myself and ministers from Focus on the Family to Sanctuary Church to the Unitarian Church. There, there will be probably better than half a dozen different ministers, Buddhists. We have lots of different people coming. Um, leaders of civic organizations will be there. Uh, possibly a couple of our local city council people or politicians. There will be many people there from all different walks of life in our city. And they will all speak what they think they need to speak. And some of them will speak angry words because this can't happen. And some of them will speak heartfelt words because it hurts so bad that this has happened. I'm hoping that we can be there to hold neutral ground. That we can be there to be love. In all of its faces and forms. In its soft, gentle whispers and in its strong gale force. Because being that is the only thing that's going to change this. It is the single most powerful tool we have. And we are masters in this community. Love is what we do. It's who we are and it's what we do. We hold the presence of love. In the face of all other emotions, we hold steady the presence of love. And we stand with those who have been hurt and we recognize anger as hurt that has been hidden and masked, and we hold love. To hold love, we have to be here right now. Love is not something we can do looking back, and it's not something we can get to if we wait long enough. To hold love is something we do right this minute. We simply make space for love to fill us, to express through us. We don't have to do anything We have to be something. And we practice it every week. Every week when we go into the silence, we practice clearing everything else and being. Just being. And when we are able to be, we are the presence of love expressing. So, I'm inviting you to come with me this afternoon. And if you don't have time, or you have other plans, I understand. It's short notice. But there's a box full of these signs out there. And this is actually what we're calling the rally. This is called the Love Lives Here rally. This word means something to us. To a lot of people, it will be a very nebulous term because we use love in a lot of different ways in our society. But we here, we know what this word means. So I want to invite you to join me at 3 o'clock if you feel called to do so. And whether you do or not, I invite you to hold space at three o'clock for love. I invite you to take one of these home. There's a box of them out there. To put it somewhere where you can see it. 
And if you want to do this with me, I'm going to encourage people afterwards, because I printed them for out there as well, I'm going to encourage people to do a Facebook campaign and stand with people they don't know, people who are different than, than them in some way or another. But to take, do, let's just plaster Facebook with this message. Let's just let people know love lives here in Colorado Springs. This is who we are. Not who we want to be. Not who, maybe even not who we used to be. But it's who we are and how we will live. Several weeks ago, I talked to you about having a strong back and a soft front. That we stand tall and strong in the face of adversity. And we keep this front part of us open and vulnerable and available. Today is a day to be strong in the back and soft in the front. So I hope you'll join me on whatever way, in whatever way you can. I have some quotes for you. Mother Teresa said, let us always meet each other with a smile, for the smile is the beginning of love. Maya Angelou said, love liberates It does not bind. Bob Marley said, you say you love rain, but you use an umbrella to walk under it. (laughs) You say you love sun, but you seek shelter when it's shining. You say you love wind, but when it comes to you, you close your windows. That's why I'm scared when you say you love me. Sophocles said one word frees all of us of the weight and pain of life. That word is love. And Martin Luther King said this, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can.